chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and uh, if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. That passage can be found in page 934, 934 in your pew Bible. And this is the story of the wise men or the magi visiting the child who had been born king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. It records an event at the birth of Christ, wise men from the east coming to worship the king of the Jews, and not just the Jews, but the King of all ages, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. Lord, we recognize that as we looked at the meaning of baptism this morning of Hannah and how that baptism brings us from death into eternal life, resurrection life, the life that can be given only by the one who himself was raised from the dead, Jesus our Savior. Father, we pray all of this in his name and for his sake. And all of God's children said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when I read this Christmas story, it's familiar to most of us uh, who've been around. It's, uh, it's become a uh, tradition to read this story in houses across the world. Um, and I'm always <laughs> reminded of the, the three wise men in children's plays or Christmas plays where they have uh, these wise men bring gifts. And uh, I'm reminded of the, you know, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And uh, I'm reminded of the one school play where they put on this entire narrative. And of course, it comes time for these little second and third graders to come and present the gifts to the child at the house. And uh, (laughs) 
One of the children comes up and it's the first magi and they, they come up and they say, here, I present you gold. And he places the gold down and then moves on out of the way for the next magi to come in. And the next magi comes in and says, here, I present to you myrrh. And of course, he puts it down and then he moves on to the side. The third little boy comes in and he says, here, Frank sent this. So whether you call it Frank sent this or frankincense, it works, right? Well, as we think about this story, I'm convinced that there truly are three steps to hope. The first one is the pilgrimage. The pilgrimage. Look at it, what it says there in verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we have no idea how long. We don't know how long this was. Some people believe that Jesus may have been close to the age of two years old, because later on in the narrative, Herod sends out instructions to kill any child under the age of two. But it could have been six months, it could have been a year, it could have been a year and a half, we have no idea. But it was after he had been born in Bethlehem. We know that on day eight, Mary and Joseph took him into Jerusalem to have him circumcised in accordance with the Mosaic law. And then, of course, they returned. We also know from this story here is that he's no longer in a stable. He is actually, they are in a home. They're in a house. It says that in this narrative that I just read. Furthermore, we don't know how many uh, of these wise men actually came. We say three because of the number of gifts that were given. But truly, we don't know that. And so part of our Bible study and part of how we always want to interact with the Word of God is to never read more into it than what is there. Okay, and so what we can say is that there were magi from the east. Magi from the east. Now, what is that word magi? You know, commentators and scholars, theologians have struggled with this word over the years. The word literally is magoi. Magoi, meaning plural of magi. And the idea is that these were learned people. They were absolutely enthralled with the cosmic forces that they saw around them, uh, looking at the stars in the sky. Some uh, would render these uh, people as astrologers, but they were more than that because astrology takes with it some superstitious kind of a bent. But we also recognize that they're more than astrologers and they're more than astronomers, some would say, because they really did follow this star. They surely had an idea of what uh, the, the view of stars and what they mean and how that led them to this house was all about. The best we can tell is that these were a priestly tribe, a priestly tribe who were from ancient Media and Persia. Now, if you like Bible history this morning, you're going to love this message because I'm going to give you some biblical history. If you don't like it, stay tuned. I'll keep you in, informed of when we get back to teaching about this passage. But it's so important for us to understand the history. The question that we first have to ask ourselves is, these learned people who are uh, just enthralled with the idea of the stars and the planets... How long was their travel? They came from the east, from Persia, from Media. And if they came from Media and Persia, you know, I Google mapped it <laughs> this week. 
You know, if you take Route 1 through the desert, it's over a thousand miles in a car, okay? Well, it's a thousand miles, regardless of whether you walk or in a car or on a camel, okay? It's another interesting thing is we see camels in the manger scenes oftentimes. It doesn't say there were camels. We could assume that. That's how Middle Easterners traveled back in that day. But they came over a thousand miles. I asked Hannah and her family this morning, I said, did you drive down from Maryland? Because I've taken that trip thousands of times, okay? It's an eight-hour trip. And it's about 680 miles or thereabouts to Baltimore. So I was thinking that her family made a similar trip, but they flew. They, they took an airplane. So uh, my, my story ends there. So the bottom line, though, is that this is actually the biggest question. How do Middle Eastern learned individuals, intellects, who were fascinated by the stars... Why would they feel the, or have the knowledge of some Jewish king? Of a king born of the Jews? Why would they care? Well, this is where we get into our history. You realize that uh, during the exile of the Israelite people, we know that the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled into Assyria in 722 B.C., 722 years before Christ, okay? And then the southern kingdom held on for a little while, but in 586 B.C., they were invaded by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, many of you know the name from the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar, he went in and raided uh, Jerusalem, and he burned down the temple, and he carried off the exiles, okay? And so here is Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., Several had been deported from Israel before that. Two of the men are men who have written books in the Old Testament. One was Daniel and the other was Ezekiel. So if you read Daniel and Ezekiel, you get some context of what their life was like in exile in the area of Babylon and then later Media Persia. Now it's interesting if you understand the history there, Daniel, of course, became very famous within the Babylonian kingdom. And then, of course, the Mede, Mede kingdom, Darius the Mede himself. Daniel was given visions, was given an understanding of what was to come. And if you read Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, won't tell his seers, his magi, or any other intellects or prophets what the dream was. He said, if you really are from God, then you would know what the dream is and the interpretation thereof. Finally, they bring Daniel in because Daniel's known as this Jew who really has the visions of God. And so Daniel comes and he not only tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream, but he interprets the dream and he talks about a future kingdom and a king who will come and destroy all earthly kingdoms after it. You can imagine that the people of Israel who had been exiled into Babylon for 70 years, they settled down. They started to intermarry with the Babylonians. They started to have influence over the Babylonians. They brought their Old Testament Bible. And when they brought their Old Testament Bible, they would read to these Babylonians, these Medes and these Persians, these words. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, 
and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This was Isaiah chapter 9. We read it every Christmas. One would argue that these wise men knew this passage. Furthermore, they would go back into Numbers and they would read this prophecy from Balaam. It's an oracle that Balaam gives in Numbers chapter 24. It says this, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor. The prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God. Who has knowledge from the Most High. Who sees a vision from the Almighty. Who falls prostrate prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. This is a book of Moses written around 1545 BC or 1445 BC. And yet it points to a star coming out of Jacob, a scepter rising, a kingship arising out of Israel. That's the pilgrimage that propelled these wise men to follow. They wanted to see firsthand the coming of the king of the Jews. And so they took the pilgrimage. My question for all of us this morning is, how far have you traveled to meet the king of kings and lord of lords? How far will you go to come and sit at the feet of the king of the universe? So we move from the pilgrimage here to the prophecy. Look at what it says there in verses 3 and following. When King Herod, now King Herod was an Idumean. That's just a famous word, fav, fav, you know, like a, a, a word, crazy word that means he was an Edomite as well as part Jew. He was a part Edomite and part Roman. That's why he was raised to a king in the Roman Empire, you see. And Herod became a king. Don't miss the fact that he refers to, Matthew does, to King Herod and then contrasts him with the child born in a manger and now living in a house. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Why was he disturbed? One of the most paranoid kings in all of biblical history was King Herod. He was so paranoid he would have family destroyed and executed because he thought they might usurp the throne from him. He became paranoid towards the end of his life in such a way that he literally saw shadows everywhere he went. Here was a king who, when these wise men show up at the palace, you can imagine he's saying, you know, you would think he would say, well, I'm the king. I'm the king of the Jews. But he didn't say that. Instead, he started to worry 
he started to become disturbed. And when Herod gets disturbed, all of Israel gets disturbed. Why? Because when Herod is uncomfortable, when Herod feels threatened, people die. People die. That's what it says there. All of Jerusalem with him were disturbed. And when he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. He didn't know anything about the Old Testament. He didn't know anything about the prophecies. So he asked the chief priests and the elders. He asked the most religious people of their day. And they told him, that, of course, he's, from, he's going to come out of Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then they quote Micah. They quote Micah. And what does it say? Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. I find it fascinating that these chief priests, these religious people, knew the prophecy. They knew that God had planned in his perfect will that a Savior would be born in Bethlehem. They understood the prophecy And they did nothing about it. Pagan, Gentile, intellectual men searching, seeking this king of the Jews traverse 800 miles across a desert wasteland to come and worship the king of the universe. And these religious people right in Jerusalem, sit right there at home and cross their arms. Oh, you want to know where he's born? Six miles down the road. But I'm not going to go. I'm not going to bring any gifts. I'm not going to worship him. This was the hard heart of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He's in Bethlehem, and like we learned last week, it's the house of bread. The bread of life was coming to this earth, manna from heaven. And look at what it says there, the second part of that quote from Micah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. Do you see the, the mixture of these two words? A ruler and a shepherd. Normally you wouldn't put those two words together. And in fact, that is what Jesus is. He is both ruler and shepherd. You know, David was a shepherd boy. David became a king, a ruler. But he was imperfect. He was not the king that God had ordained and anointed to be the king of kings. No, but David would point to a future king, Jesus Christ, who was the perfect one who came out of Bethlehem. So what does a good shepherd do? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do? A good shepherd feeds his flock. A good shepherd guides his flock. A good shepherd cares for his flock. A good shepherd protects his flock. And a good shepherd will go and rescue those of the flock who have gone into peril. That is what a good shepherd does. And that is what Jesus says. He says, I will leave the 90 and 9 and I will go and I will rescue the one so that when one comes back, all of heaven will rejoice that one was lost but now is found. One was dead but is now 
alive. We see it throughout all of his parables. We see it in all of his teachings. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the shepherd for the people, and he will shepherd us in our future. When we get to heaven, Revelation chapter 7 says this, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The Lamb will be our shepherd. And then it says this, He will lead them to springs of living water. Does it not take us back to Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters. All of the words and all of the symbolism are wrapped up in the promise and the hope of a future time when we will walk beside still waters with the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. The last part of that phrase out of uh, Revelation is He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Herod didn't want to worship this newborn king. The religious leaders, the people who touted themselves as real experts in the law, they didn't want to worship him. They wanted to sit and wait for a ruler, not a shepherd. But you see, we have the pilgrimage, we have the prophecy, and then lastly, we have what's most amazing. We have the promise. Look at what it says there in verses 7 through 12. First, it says that Herod called the Magi secretly and found them out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So here's Herod. He's trying to plot. He has no interest in going to see this king. He has no interest in worshiping him, as we just said. What he wants to do is he wants to know where he is so that he can go and take him out. Jesus becomes a competitor to Herod. He will be a threat to Herod's throne. And so therefore, he wants to take him out. And so in verse 9, it says, After they heard the, uh, the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now it stops. Now, many of us can get hijacked by the star in this story. Many of us in this room are enamored with the idea. What kind of a star was it? Was it a comet? Was it a meteor? Was there some uh, cosmic uh, uh, vision that happened during the time of 5 to 6 BC when Christ was born? Many of us are enamored with that kind of study. A recent book was written that talked about a particular comet that did in fact occur in that part of the world that time when Jesus was born. And he writes an entire book on it. And I promise you, if you are interested in that, you can read book after book after book after book. But here I am to tell you this. It doesn't tell us about the star. It doesn't give us all the details. So what's the first rule of Bible study? Don't read more into it than is there. I do remember that in the Bible it says during the times of Joshua when he was at battle, the sun stood still. Now, if God can cause the sun to stand still, I promise you he can give these wise men a star. Right? After all, the sun is nothing more than a big star. Right? 
And so the idea here is that we all have to recognize that the one who created the universe and the one who established all of the physical and natural laws by which our universe operates can suspend them in order to accomplish his purposes. You understand that's what Jesus did. If you and I went out uh, to a pool and we decided we wanted to walk on the water, none of us would make it across the pool. But Jesus walked on the water. None of us could take a few pieces of bread and some loaves of fish and feed an army of 5,000 people, but Jesus did. None of us can walk up to a paralytic and say, be healed, get up, take your mat, go home, and tell your friends. But Jesus did. None of us, we would like to be able to take water and turn it into wine. And the best tasting wine of all. But Jesus did. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. And because of that, he is able to do what only God can do. And so this star appears over this place where the child was born. That's all we have to believe. And when they saw the star, they were what? Overjoyed. They were overjoyed. And they were so excited that the God of the universe had taken them to this place. (laughs) And then we get to the part of verse 11. On coming to the house, these wise men saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Don't miss that. They didn't bow down and worship Mary. They didn't bow down and worship Joseph. They didn't bow down in a generic praise to God in heaven. No, they bowed down and they worshiped the child, Jesus Christ. We assemble every Sunday to worship him and him alone. You know, the word worship there is proskunine, proskunine. Do you know what it literally means in the Greek? It means to kiss, to fall down, face in the dirt, and literally kiss the dirt on which this child is in. You are literally falling down. If a great historical person who has a great influence were to walk into this room this morning, You know, it could be a president of some country, it could be some great rock star, it could be some great entertainer, some poet, some great scholar, some great writer. They would come in and we would all stand and we would clap. We would say, yes, yes, this is a person who's really had an impact on the world. But I promise you, if Jesus Christ came in here this morning, those of us who know him would fall flat on our face. We are not worthy to be in the presence of a holy God. And yet, in his grace, in his mercy, in his great love for us, he's made a way for us. We are to worship him. You know, the word worship occurs three times in this passage. The word child appears three times in this passage. And when tempted by Satan, what did Jesus do? He said, he rebuked Satan and he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In Romans chapter 12, Paul would 
echo that same sentiment of what worship is all about with these words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. And so for us, all of us in this room and on live stream today, we are worshiping the King born of the Jews, but we know that He is the King of all. He is the one who has come to save the world from its sin. Finally, we get to the presentation of the gifts. And as we said, you know, they came in and presented their treasures. Many people believe there's three gifts, so there must be three wise men. Uh, We can't make that connection. But the gold was the most precious metal of that time. It's still precious today. Gold is one of the most precious treasures on earth. So they brought gold. Now, for many of us, you know, we we think that Jesus and his mom and dad would have been pretty poor, and they were until this day, when all of a sudden now they had some gold. They had some myrrh, and they had some incense. All of this is very rare stuff, and so therefore precious and very valuable. So we understand that Jesus, of course, Joseph was a carpenter as well. The frankincense is the most precious fragrance in that part of the world. It would come from tree sap. And in Exodus chapter 30, we read these words. Exodus 30 really depicts what Moses is to do with the Ark of the Covenant. This is the most holy, play, holy instrument or a box on which the Ten Commandments were encapsulated. Also the jar of manna. Also the, the, uh, the Aaron's staff that budded. All three of those are in This ark. And so here this ark of the covenant is an important piece in the most holy place. The holy temple. Where God would meet man. And look at what it says there. It says in verse uh, chapter 30 it says it was placed. This frankincense was placed in front of the ark of the covenant. Which is the meeting place between God and man. So you understand these wise men understood at least that much that they brought frankincense because they understood if I'm going to meet God face to face, I must bring frankincense. And then lastly, myrrh. Myrrh was the most precious anointing oil. It too came from tree saps in Middle East and it was used to anoint the tent of meeting. And all of the instruments used in the temple sacrifices, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of shewbread, The basin, the altar, the lampstand, were all anointed with this myrrh. In Exodus chapter 30, we learn learn all this. So it's important for us to understand that once again, God will make all things holy when he anoints them. Jesus is the anointed one. And when we come before the anointed one, we must bring our own anointing as well. We ourselves are not the Holy Ones. But when we come into the presence of the Holy One, we are part of His family. That's powerful. So my challenge this morning to all of us is this. How far will you go to be with Jesus? What will you do with what you know 
Uh, most people in America have no excuse about not having heard the gospel. We all know it. But what will we do with it? Will we be like those chief priests and those religious leaders who sit with their arms folded? Or will we open up our lives to this King of kings and Lord of lords? And then finally, how much will you give? What gifts will you give to the Most Holy One? What is more precious than giving your life to Him? Surrendering everything that you have and everything that you are to following Him. This is the challenge for all of us. We have our own life we want to lead, but Jesus demands it all. And so we ask that question, what will we give to the Lord? You know, if I have a chance to ask those wise men a question or two, this is what I would ask. First of all, I would say if, you know, I know you came to Bethlehem. You came to Bethlehem and arrived here with the earth's most precious treasures in your hands. I wonder, did you leave Bethlehem with heaven's most precious treasure in your heart? Did you come with all that the world has to offer? Or will you come to Jesus with what only he can give? Your life. Let us pray. Father, This is a moment when we recognize that when we come to the end of ourselves, freedom in Christ begins. That these wise men traveled over 800 miles, probably over 1,000 miles to come see the Christ King. But Lord, we miss the opportunity when he's right here in our midst. Lord, I pray as we think about all that we have done this morning, singing hymns to your throne, praying prayers, studying your word, hearing the bells of Christmas, the ordinance of baptism, and what we'll do in a few moments is the Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray that all of this is a fragrant offering up to your throne, for he alone is worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name.